So, for the last 20 years, that anti-heroes have become very popular on TV and in movies. See, people wanted to move beyond the overly simplistic good guys and bad guys of the 80s and 90s, and they wanted characters that were more complex, because that's not really how we experience life. We wanted characters that were more real, more nuanced. Enter the anti-hero. It's someone who lacks the conventional hero qualities like morality, idealism, or, or courage, but still at times tries to do the right thing. And even if it's not always for the right reasons. So they may be selfish, immoral, uh, even vulgar, but you still root for them. So Batman is the classic anti-hero and has been for decades. But we also see it in Deadpool, Jessica Jones, Punisher, and on TV, we got them also. The Boys, Walter White from Breaking Bad, uh, Zuko from Avatar, even Mandalorian and, and Boba Fett. All anti-heroes. But lately, something really interesting has shifted. The brooding, morally ambiguous anti-heroes aren't quite as popular as they once were. If you look at, back at some of the, the more recent um, um, hero movies, the Batman, Morbius, Venom, all of them kind of flopped. And on TV, they've largely vanished. And instead, we have shows like Stranger Things, Ted Lasso, This Is Us, with characters who are still flawed, but lovable and warm, even aspirational. And this becomes very clear. It's wonderful if you, if you go to Disney+, Plus, you can compare two of their recent series, Moon Knight versus Miss Marvel. On one, you have a brooding, violent assassin. And on the other hand, you have a cheery, optimistic teenager who loves her family and wants to do good with the power that she's received. And you know, this drop in anti-heroes, it makes sense. See, in a world that, that seems to be falling apart all around us, inflation, global warming, a broken political system, rising gun deaths, we want to see good triumph over evil. We want to return back to some of those simpler days when good is good and bad is bad and the good guys defeat the bad guys. See, we don't want to see morally questionable characters on TV when they're dominating the news cycle every night. And, and more now, more than ever, we're, we're seeking hope and comfort from the shows we watch. We want to see good triumph over evil. Well, that's exactly what the book of Revelation is all about. And over the last two months, you've heard about the Lamb, the resurrected Jesus who is righteous and pure and worthy, the only one worthy of our praise. And you also heard about Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the beasts, and demons who are corrupt, deceptive, and consumed with pride. And so this week we move into chapters 14 and 15, part of this middle section of Revelation. 
And you, you listened, we all listened to chapter 14 just a moment ago. And we're going to spend most of our time on that chapter and then only touch on 15 and 16 a little bit um, because the kids are with us and I, I'm a little more sensitive today about what, what we talk about. And so this block of scripture, 14, 15, and 16, really carries four main parts. There's a discussion of the lamb and the 144,000. And then there's some angels announcing, there are three angels announcing judgment. And then these metaphors of the harvest, you, you heard that toward the end of the passage. And then 15 and 16 cover these seven bowls of plagues, or bowls of judgment. And as I mentioned, we're going to spend most of our time in 14, which is hitting on those three. And then toward the end, we're going to hit 15 to 16. And there's one theme that comes up over and over and over again here in chapter 14. And it's the contrast between God and evil. That contrast is so stark in chapter 14. We're going to look at six different examples of that contrast that we see in 14 and sometimes contrasting with, with what we just talked about last week in 13. And my goal isn't to dive deeply into, into each one of these. In fact, there's going to be a lot in these chapters that I don't even touch on. But my goal is to paint you a picture, to give you a holistic view of this contrast between God and evil. And I believe that together, all of these contrasts can warn us of the hypnotic power of the world system. And it reminds us to never, ever lose sight of the present and future blessing of being a child of God. And so let's start with the first contrast. This is the contrast between Zion, this city of God's presence, and Babylon, the center of idolatry and immorality. So where do these cities come from? Well, they start in the Old Testament. Let's look at verse, first we'll look at verse 1. The chapter starts out with verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now in contrast, verse 8 says, A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now each of these locations has both literal and symbolic meaning. So Mount Zion is a literal hill. It is a literal mountain. In fact, it's the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. It was the first mountain, the, the city of David, that, the first city that David conquered was called Mount Zion. And because temple, the, the, the city of Jerusalem is on Mount Zion, the temple, the physical temple, was also on Mount Zion. And if you've ever seen pictures of Israel, the, the temple mount and the dome on the temple, that gold temple, um, that gold rounded mount, that is Mount Zion. But because those were the literal meanings, it also held the symbolic meaning that the temple, a physical structure, was also called Mount Zion. Also, this Mount Zion was, was the city of God, not just in the present, but the future city of God. 
We might even call it heaven. So it was synonymous with that. Now, in contrast, think of Babylon. Now, Babylon was a major world power in the ancient Near East. In fact, they were the ones who took the Israelites into slavery and exile and destroyed Jerusalem. Center of sin, all that is immoral, could be called Babylon. In fact, next week we're going to talk, could be called Babylon. In fact, next week we're going to talk a whole lot about Babylon because the next two chapters talk a lot about that. So, so we'll dive more into Babylon next week. So that's one contrast. Another one is that, that there are names and marks that the followers of the Lamb have, and those are contrasted with the names and the marks that the followers of the beast has. Now, I just read verse 1 that spoke of the 144,000. These are redeemed and righteous people. Uh, and they have the name of the Father on their foreheads. And this is a direct contrast. If you, if you were here last week or have watched, watched it online, this is a direct contrast to those who followed the beast and had the mark of the beast on their foreheads. That's the contrast. In fact, the mark of the beast is even referenced again in verses 9 and 11. So this reaffirms what I said last week. The mark of the beast is not microchips, it is not vaccines, and it is not any other whack job on YouTube. The mark of the beast is a mark of allegiance. It is who you belong to. And do, here's my advice. Do not listen to anybody who wants to talk about the mark of the beast without also talking about the mark of the father. Because those are right next to each other in scripture. And they are, they are two sides of one coin. And that's another contrast we see. Okay? Third one. Another contrast is the future of the redeemed differs radically from the fate of the inhabitants of the earth. So on one hand, you have this 144,000, which, and these are redeemed. And if you wonder why 144,000, some will argue, say the Jehovah's Witnesses will argue, that is a literal number, and there will only be 144,000 redeemed. But if you've been through this series, if you've been watching, then you've heard Revelation doesn't use numbers literally. Revelations are symbolic. Or numbers are symbolic in Revelations. So you have 12, which represents the people of God, 12, the, the 12 tribes, the 12 disciples, okay? times 12, which means a whole lot of people of God, times 1,000, which is kind of just the, it'd be like me standing up here and be like a gigazillion. It's just the biggest number they could imagine. So what this means, this 144,000, is symbolic of an enormous number of redeemed people of God. And they're described as having a future of singing and worshiping, possibly even with harps. If you ever wonder why the angels with harps things, it comes right out of Revelation, which that means I might in heaven actually have musical talent. That'd be nice for a change. Um, and, and they were singing, that's a, for a huge amount of God's people. Now, in contrast, that the followers of the beast, here's what happens. If we go down a few verses. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on its forehead or on its hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, 
which will be poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Now that is it. Those are very radically different futures. Here we have the wrath of God contrasted with the blessings of God. Another one. There's a contrast between those who rest from their labor and those who find no rest. So the last line of the description we just read says this. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And now in contrast, just another verse or two down, says, I heard an angel from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And I don't know about you, but I could show you some rest from my labor. That sounds really good these days. Another one. There's a difference between truth and deceit. It comes up yet again. This is something that comes up over and over in Revelation. The difference between truth and and, and deceit. So in the last chapter, we saw two beasts deceiving people, actively and intentionally deceiving. And now, in 14, we have the 144,000, and they're described as having no lie on their mouth. They are blameless. Truth versus deceit. Lastly, some, some of those who follow, some follow wherever the lamb goes, and others are led to their death by the beast. And see, all of this is fundamentally a contrast in following. The redeemed people follow the lamb wherever he goes. And others, the ones deceived by the beast, follow him too. But it's to their death. Seven con- six contrasts. So what do we do with all of these contrasts? What picture are you seeing here? Well, all of, these are all very over-the-top images of redemption and condemnation. What do we do with all of these? And I can answer that in one simple word. Choose. Choose. We have to choose sides in the conflict between God and evil. Neutrality is not an option. We have to choose. Now, you might be sitting here going, well, isn't this fairly obvious? Like, I don't want to follow a beast. I'd much rather follow a lamb. This is obvious. These images are so hyperbolic that it barely seems like a difficult decision. Who would possibly want to follow the beast and into all of that torment and torture? See, nobody listening to these chapters would be like, oh, yeah, that eternal torment sounds great. I'm going to follow the beast. No. How How could it be so obvious? Why wouldn't everybody choose the lamb if it's this obvious? 
Well, there's a professor uh, at local uh, Luther Seminary here who had a great response to this. And so Craig Kester said this. John did not make such a sharp distinction because the alternatives were obvious to his readers, but because the alternatives were not obvious. And we can see this if we go all the way back to chapters 2 and 3 that we talked about the second week of this series. Those, those letters that God wrote to seven churches of Revelation. See, nearly every one of them, they were compromising their faith. They were making small, slippery slope decisions that led to bigger decisions and bigger decisions. They were abandoning their first love. They, they followed a foreign god into idolatry and immorality. They refused to repent of their sin. They looked good on the outside, but were dead on the inside. They were lukewarm in their faith. Those are all very real. Now those, those are more relatable. I bet there's one of those you can see in your own life right now. See, the, the Christians in these seven churches, they were torn between compromise and commitment. And I think we can be torn also. You might have even been torn this week or yesterday. See, this choice we have isn't always so obvious between a beast and a heavenly lamb. That's not really how it looks in our daily lives. It looks like small compromises. Small compromises. So all of these, all of these things that we see in, in the churches of Revelation, these are all examples of following the beast. We turn our eyes and our hearts away from the lamb. And the only other alternative is the beast. And it's a slippery slope of following the world instead of following God. It's putting your wants, your family, your culture on the throne instead of letting the lamb sit where he belongs. See, evil is subtle. It's not as obvious as we see in the middle part of Revelation. Evil is subtle. And, and this evil can rob us of what God really desires if we, if we give ourselves to things that are worthless or wasteful or worse, destructive. What sort of shows do you watch? Articles you read? Does your humor, the humor you enjoy, does that honor Christ? Do your words tear down or build up? Are you kind to the people who are unkind to you? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? Is your life energy directed inward toward selfishness or outward toward the service of others? Are you generous with your things, your time, your wisdom? 
Are you more like the world? Are you more like your culture? Than you are like Christ. See, worldliness is a subtle poison to our faith. It's not waking up one morning and saying, I'm going to follow a giant multi-headed dragon into hell. It's those decisions, those small decisions of giving your life over to Christ. Every morning, every decision. To leave Christ on the throne where he belongs and not try to usurp it for yourself, your future, your family. Worldliness is a subtle poison to our faith. And the consequences are grave. So what do you do? What do you do right now in your soul if you're feeling like there's something in your life where you're compromising? Where you're turning even a little bit away from the lamb. And you now know what the other thing you're turning to is. What do you do with that? What if, you're, what if you feel like parts of your life are just sliding away from the throne and toward the way of the beast? What do you do? Well, that's where 15 and 16 come in. So in 15 and 16, they describe another round of plagues. Now, if, if you've watched or if you've been here some of the last few weeks, we've talked, there, there have been three rounds, three descriptions of plagues. And it might actually be the same set of plagues just described over and over again. We've seen seven scrolls and seals. We've seen seven trumpets. And now in 15 and 16, we see seven bowls. And these are still seven bowls of... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll just set that down nicely. And we see seven descriptions of plagues again. And they're some of the same plagues we saw in earlier chapters. Sores, poisoned waters, drying up rivers, burning sun, darkness, earthquakes. And all of these, just like they all, each one, each round has had, they each are designed to echo back to the plagues of Egypt, Pharaoh, and Moses. And the point of all of the plagues, every single time, in Revelation and back in Exodus, have always been one thing. There's been one call that is the purpose of all of the plagues. It's that. That's the purpose of the plagues. And that's what Jesus, or that's what God calls, the Father calls for... The, in response to the plagues, is to repent. That's the purpose of them every time. So what is repentance? Well, in the Old Testament, it uses words like to turn back, to return to God, to seek him first. In the New Testament, it's phrases like turn around. Change your mind. Change your purpose. That's what repentance is. 
It's a process of returning to God. For those, for those of you who are Christian, are Christian it's, maybe it's turning back to God. Maybe you grew up going to church, but you're not quite sure about your faith these days. Maybe it's going back to your first love from decades ago. And maybe you just don't know about this whole Jesus thing. But given the choice that you'd rather follow the lamb into blessing and bliss. And maybe that means you're turning around for the first time. See, Revelation, the book of Revelation is not here to give you timelines or buzzwords or YouTube content. It's here to call you to repentance. To look into those dark places in your heart and soul. To turn to God and allow him to shine the light of Christ to bring healing and redemption into them. That's what the book of Revelation is for. And that's what redemption is for. So we're going to close with two worship songs. As you may know, we normally do one. We're going to do two songs here because I wanted to give you an extended time of worship. I wanted to give you an extended time with God. You can sing or you can simply listen. But I want to give you a chance to listen to God and respond to him. And for some of you, that will mean repent. To turn around, admit where you've fallen short, admit where you've turned away from God. And during these songs, I also want to give a chance to bless you and remind you of the great truth of Christ. And so I'm going to be down front. And if during these songs, at any point, you have repented, you've turned around, you've changed your mind, changed your purpose, gone back to your first love, I want to give you a chance to be reminded of how powerful that is. So I'm going to be down front with some oil some oil here, and I would love to anoint you and remind you that in Christ you are forgiven. Um, so if, if whatever repentance looks like for you this morning, if you would like a reminder of what God does in response to you, come on down front with me. So join me in a word of prayer. God, I confess that Revelation is hard to read sometimes. Sometimes even abhorrent or horrific. But the price of unrepentance is even higher and even worse. So God, break our hearts. Break our hearts over the ways we turn away from you. And even today, Holy Spirit, prompt us, drive us, move us to turn around, to turn back to you, to turn back to our first love or maybe a new love. Give us a chance 
today over the next couple songs to call our allegiance to you and you alone, Lord. So we thank you. We praise you and we are humbled before you. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.